If you will, turn with me to Matthew 28, verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16. Matthew 28 and verse 16, I'll read there to verse 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would receive this for what it is, the word of the head of the church, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ the inerrant, inspired, infallible, authoritative, sufficient word given to us by the Spirit. May you, Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May we hear what you are saying to the churches. We're thankful for the gift of your word as it's given by the hand of Matthew inspired by the Holy Spirit, not only for the people to whom Matthew originally wrote, but even to your church in all ages. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Christianity is Trinitarianism. I hope you're picking up a theme from me. This is simply the historic belief of Christianity. Listen to a bit of the Athanasian Creed. Now this is the Catholic or universal faith that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. This is the Lord we know, we trust, we worship. And what we're going to talk about today, this is the Lord we proclaim. I spent time in my last session speaking about the Trinity and worship, and as we end this conference, I want to speak about the Trinity and missions. Missions is simply making our triune Lord known among those peoples where he is not known and worshipped. To really quote John Piper, missions exists 
where worship does not exist. The mission of the church is to proclaim the saving work of our triune Lord. And in doing so, to gather those who are elect of the Father, blood-bought by the Son, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, into Christ's visible church for their mutual upbuilding and encouragement. Our mission is to make disciples of Christ. And in making disciples of Christ, to gather people, God's people into communion with our triune Lord. So we'll consider this as we look at the Great Commission. And as we look at the Great Commission, I really want to look at the commission under three general headings. First, the authority of the Great Commission in verses 16 through 18. I'll pick up a bit of, the, of verse 20. Second, the nature of the Great Commission in verses 19 through the first part of verse 20. And finally, the promise in the Great Commission. So let's look first at the authority of the Great Commission. Look with me at verse 16. As we look, I want you to notice how this passage we call the Great Commission begins. And I want you to pay attention to that because the information here isn't, isn't just incidental. There are some details that ground the authority of the Great Commission we find here. Look, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Jesus directs his disciples. There's 11 here because Judas Iscariot is now not a part of the disciples any longer. In Acts 1, we'll add Matthias, as you all know. But Jesus says to his 11 disciples, meet me on a mountain. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but that sets up to some degree the drama of the scene. For God meets his people on the mountain. Eden is a garden, or the Garden of Eden, rather, is a garden below the mountain Eden, through which the rivers pour, where Adam met with God. Noah comes out of the ark and meets with the Lord on Mount Ararat. Abraham meets with the Lord on Mount Moriah. Moses meets with the Lord on Mount Sinai. Elijah meets with the Lord on Mount Horeb. Israel meets with the Lord on the Temple Mount. Jesus delivers his most famous sermon on the mount. Jesus is transfigured on the mount. Jesus is crucified on Mount Golgotha. And now Jesus meets with his disciples on a mountain. He is their Lord and their God, meeting with his disciples on the mountain, and something significant is happening here. He is giving them his last words his final marching orders. He's telling them what they are now to do as he ascends to the Father. He's giving his church permission. Second detail, look at verse 17. Jesus is worshiped, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Note, it, note though that some worshiped him. Yes, some doubted, but that's not the surprising fact here. It's not surprising that some doubted. It's surprising that some worshiped and that Jesus does not rebuke that worship. He receives that worship. He is 
The same Jesus who when tempted by Satan in Matthew 4.10 says, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He is the same Jesus who is happy to quote from the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And now this Jesus is receiving worship. So when this commission comes, it comes not just from the crucified and resurrected Christ, but from the one who is the Son of God. It comes from the Christ who is the second Adam and who is the Lord of glory. He is the one whom Doubting Thomas rightly calls my Lord and my God. Third detail, notice that Jesus is entrusted with all authority, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Son of God as the incarnate Christ, our priest king, is entrusted with all that the Father promised to him. The Father has promised his eternally begotten Son all the kingdoms of the earth. Think of Psalm 2-7. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, this is now David speaking, really, in Psalm 2, but really, um, should I use, I'm going to use one big word. James used a bunch, so forgive me. Think prosopologically. That means in the person of. You're hearing, if you will, a divine interchange or exchange between the Father and the Son. The Son here is speaking through David. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus is the Danielic son of man who is entrusted by his father with the nations. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, Jesus is the king of kings, the ruler, Revelation 1-5, of all the kings of the earth, and he has all authority in heaven and on earth. There is nothing that evades his rule. And this is the one who commands his disciples here. When he speaks, he's greater than all the prophets before him, as he is the son. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to the prophet or to our fathers in the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the one commanding his disciples. Finally, Jesus is God with us. Verse 20, look down at verse 20. 
Last part, last sentence of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I will be with you always. This is an inclusio. If you know what an inclusio is, it's kind of like brackets. The brackets, really, the gospel of Matthew. We hear the first half of that bracket in Matthew 1, 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now we hear, I will be with you always. He is God with us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place, preeminence in everything. Yes. Do you hear who the author of the Great Commission is? It is Christ, the Son of God, and its author grounds its authority. The Great Commission is not negotiable. It is not something your church should consider whether or not you want to be involved in. It is the marching order from the Lord our God himself, from the Christ, the head of your church. Your elders are not the head of your church. Your pastor is not the head of your church. Christ is the head of your church. You don't have to wait for your pastor to go off on a retreat and figure out what the mission of your church is. You don't have to wait for it. Jesus already told us. If we give any ground toward disobedience, it is grave sin. I have a friend, Brad Buser. Brad um, planted a church among the Teddy People Group, which was a formerly cannibalistic tribe in the mountains in Papua New Guinea. Brad moved there in 1979 when Clinton was president. He came back in 1999 when, I mean, excuse me, when Carter was president, came back in 1999 when Clinton was president. He has terrible luck. <laughs> but he was there for 20 years. He taught them the gospel, he learned their language, taught them the gospel story. A church was born, baptized people, planted that church, translated the scriptures into their language, raised up elders and deacons, turned that over to indigenous leadership, and that church continues to this day. <clears throat> the first time I heard Brad speak, I asked him, do you miss Teddy? Do you miss that place? You're there 20 years, you love those people, you love that church. He said, absolutely not, I hated that place. 
He said, I didn't have any of the feels for that place. He said to me, actually, Chad, I wrote, I literally wrote down 5,000 reasons to leave that place. And I had one reason to stay. Jesus commanded it. And so I stayed. Brad is really the catalyst of starting Radius International, which trains people to do the same. Let's look at our second point, the nature of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Just stop there. What is the Great Commission? What are we being commanded to do? It's often pointed out that the main verb here, and it's correctly pointed out that the main verb here is the verb make disciples. And then we're told there are three other verbal ideas. We'll call them participles because that's what they are. Those participles that serve in some way that main verb are go, baptize, and teach. That's all true. It's pointed out. So in order to define the nature of the command to make disciples, I want to look at two things with those participles. First, the scope of disciple-making, and second, the goal of disciple-making. What is the scope of disciple-making? Jesus commands his disciples, look there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I've seen men argue that go is, um, it's a participle, and this is the problem with only taking basic Greek and not going on. You become a bit of a danger. It's a participle, so it just means like as you're going or while you're going. Make disciples. Can you imagine how anticlimactic that would be? Jesus appears on a mountain, resurrected in resurrected glory. His disciples fall down and worship him. He says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. So while you're walking around, could you make some disciples? <laughs> the major anticlimax there. Go is a participle of attendant circumstance. That's what kind of participle it is. What does that mean? It means that it attends the circumstance of the main verb. The main verb is make disciples, and it's an imperative, a command. Thus, go attends that circumstance and is also a command. Go and make disciples. Jesus is sending the disciples out. He isn't saying, while you're taking a walk somewhere, make some disciples. He's saying, go and make disciples. Where? Of all nations. Pantata ethne. To every ethne. Go to them all. To every people group on earth. As Paul said regarding his mission, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That's why Paul said, I make it my ambition to name Christ where he's never been named so that I not, might not lay or build on another man's foundation. In terms of Revelation 5.9, there to go to every tribe and tongue and nation. In other words, the scope of the mission is global. It's global. It's a mission that propels us to every tribe and tongue, and nation. We know the triune Lord, and thus we want to proclaim the triune Lord among all peoples. 
We worship the triune Lord. And thus we want to see the triune Lord worshiped in every tribe and tongue and nation. The church who carries this apostolic commission longs for the day in which we hear the song that John wrote about in Revelation 5, 9 through 10, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The Lord wants his glorious triune name proclaimed and worshiped in all the earth, and he sends us on that mission. It couldn't be more clear. Really couldn't be more clear. The apostles are the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20, and so this commission is passed to the church. Did you know that there are just over, somewhere between 3,000, 3,100, depending on who's doing the study and what standards they're using, 3,000 ethno-linguistically distinct people groups. That means ethnic groups with particular culture and language groups with no access to the gospel. There are over 3,000 people groups who have never heard of Jesus. Never. There is no missionary there. There is no Bible there. There is no church there. There is no gospel witness whatsoever there. Nothing. They are peoples, men, women, and children who know nothing but condemnation for their sin and the certainty of death and eternal judgment. They know about that? Yes. For though they knew that those who do such things deserve death, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them, Romans 132. All they know is is condemnation and the prospect of hell. Do we care? Do we care? I I, I wanna say this. I say this and maybe I should give a little bit of a clarification. I'm a man who's held elected office. I co-chaired Prop 8 in in California, in our area. Um, I I started Central California Right to Life. I was one of the founders of that. I have been quite involved in the public sphere, so I I don't want you to hear me saying all of that's unimportant. What I want you to hear me saying is that as many as the problems are in California, the gospel's there. There are people groups who don't have the gospel. They don't have that. Californians might have Communism, maybe. (laughs) But at least we have Christ. These people have nothing but condemnation. Those unreached peoples 
are within the scope of the Great Commission. This is the mission of your church. And reaching those people is not a program of your church or a ministry among others like women's ministry. It is the mission of your church. You make Christ known where you are, and you make Christ known where he is not known. We're to make disciples in every tribe and tongue and nation. And if we fail to lay down our lives for the lost sheep, if we fail to go to every highway and byway and compel them to come in, then don't be surprised when the Lord asks us on that great day, why did you not seek my lost sheep? I want to say this to the elders who are here. We're not supposed to just wait for some young person to go to a missions conference or the conference like this and feel convicted by the Lord and then get to sending at that point. We are to pray that the Lord of the harvest will raise up workers to go out into the harvest field. And we are to look around at the people in our church and ask the question, Lord, that young brother is godly zealous, gifted, we should sit down and talk with him. Maybe he's someone you're going to send. You don't have to wait for them to come to you. They say, well, I'm not sure if I quite feel an eternal, internal call. That's fine. You have the great commission. Jesus told you what to do, and your elders are coming alongside of you saying, we see that maybe you're that guy. We're supposed to pray the Lord would do this. And we're to call folks to this glorious mission and send them out. I'm not denying there's any internal sense of calling. What I'm telling you is a lot of your young people won't ever consider it an option if you don't bring it up to them. They won't. And the reason I emphasize young people here is because if you're going to go learn a language, really two languages, because you're going to learn a majority language and then a minority language where you go, and you're going to move in there and learn both of those languages, translate the Bible, teach them, raise up elders and deacons, get a solid, healthy church planet, that's a long commitment in life. We started Radius precisely for the reason that we wanted to help churches equip people before they send them. Well, what's the goal of making disciples? The goal of the mission well, you might say, well, the goal is to make, dis make disciples across the earth, but I want to be more specific about this goal, as Christ is more specific. I'm arguing that Jesus' goal of disciple-making is defined by these two participles, baptize and teach. We are to make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them. Here's my contention. What Jesus is commanding is that we gather his visible church, baptism, and work toward her maturity, teaching. Baptism is the visible sign that marks off Christ's church. Baptism is where faith goes public. Teaching is where faith matures. Is this not the pattern we see at Pentecost and after? The people are cut to the heart. They say, brothers, what shall we do? Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They repent, 
They're baptized, and we hear this announcement at their baptism. 3,000 were added to the church that day. And then the next thing we read is that they gathered to what? Listen to, to hear, to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the prayers, to the breaking of bread. They were marked off visibly by baptism. Then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is how the apostles fulfilled the great commission to make disciples. They proclaimed Christ. They proclaimed the facts about him, his life, death, and resurrection. Then they proclaimed, if you believe, you will receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. People believed. People were baptized into the visible church. And then people were taught toward maturity. That's the goal of the Great Commission. I, I want to be clear about this. It's not merely to see lost sheep profess faith. It's to see those sheep brought into the sheep pen. And to see those sheep listen to and obey the voice of their shepherd, our Lord Jesus, in all that he says. You don't start counting success in evangelism, like let's count heads for success in evangelism, when folks profess faith. A lost sheep looking in the direction of the sheep pen is not, has not yet been brought home. You start counting when they're baptized into Christ's visible church and they are under her teaching and discipline. But I don't want to miss an opportunity to point out something here that's at the center of my message and whose name are we baptized? I want to contend something about this naming. If you look there at verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I want to contend a bit. Baptism is a kind of naming ceremony. What do I mean by that? When you were born, the first thing you received from your parents was a name. And you grew up associating that name as you heard it called out with yourself. Whenever they say, Chad, oh, that's me. I know who I am by that name. You grow up knowing that that name identifies you. When you are baptized, you receive a new name. That name is now your identity. And what is that name? We baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When you are baptized into that name, you are being brought into vital union through faith with the one who bears that name. Paul points this out in Romans 6, 3 and following. You're being marked off as belonging to the one in whose name you're baptized. You're being identified with that name. You belong to him. You're united to him. You have been renamed. You have received the sign of being in the covenant of the one who is named. You are the possession of, the covenant people of, the one in whose name you have been baptized. We were baptized so that we would be marked out as those who belong to Christ, as those who are disciples of the crucified 
and resurrected Jesus. Your life is no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. Your life is now lived for the glory of the name into whom you've been baptized. It's not simply a formula in Matthew that we just repeat. This is speaking of the name of the one to whom you belong, to whom you are united, and who you live for and follow. And with whom we are identified, and with whom are we identified in baptism? With whom are we in covenant? Whose people are we? Who are we disciples of? Baptizing them in the name. Notice that, in the name, singular. One being, one God, one Lord. It's important that we note here that there is one name that we're baptized in. This is so because there is one God. So we are baptized in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now notice a couple things the text does not say. It does not say baptizing them in the names, plural, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's not teaching three names, but one name. These are not three separate beings here, but one Trinitarian being. Further, Jesus listed each of these persons under the one name with a definite article. It is of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus is making a distinction between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, yet he's saying they are all included in that one name. These are three eternally distinct persons subsisting in one divine essence. And Jesus is saying that you're baptized into this one Trinitarian name. And when you're baptized, you're identified or united with our Trinitarian Lord. Now, the Trinity is an admittedly difficult doctrine. You can ask James about it later. <laughs> How do we think of one simple essence eternally subsisting in three distinct persons. What do I do with such a sublime and high mystery? Listen to what Wilhelm Sabrockel said. Would you, insignificant ant, it's a good way to start, <laughs> comprehend the incomprehensible God? Believe what you cannot comprehend simply because God declares it to be so and worship the incomprehensible. What do we do with the mystery of the Trinity? We believe and we worship and we proclaim. Gregory of Nazianzus in his Oratio on Baptism uh, from January 6, 381 AD models what that worship looks like. Listen to what he says. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole and my eyes are filled 
and the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me. So we worship our triune Lord and we proclaim him to the ends of the earth. We are commanded to make disciples of our triune Lord in all the earth. We are sent to bring people into communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by proclaiming the gospel, baptizing folks into the church, and building them up in maturity through teaching to them to obey all that God has commanded. But we lack any power in and of ourselves to this end, don't we? We lack any power in and of ourselves to bring men to worship, to change hearts. Our words on their own, as my words go out of my mouth on their own, will simply fall to the ground. So how is this commission even possible to fulfill? What is our great comfort as we pursue this glorious end? Really leads to our final point, the promise of the Great Commission. Look at Matthew 28 and verse 20, the last phrase. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All word always. Behold, I am with you literally all the days. There isn't a day that he's not with us. To the end of the age. I am with you. I feel a little bit like James stole my thunder and did it far better than I did it. So thank you, brother. You saved time on this sermon. When he went to the Old Testament and showed you Moses. Do you remember the exchange between Moses and the Lord? You just heard it last hour, so I'm sure you do. But Moses said to the Lord, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. I'll be with you. That's the Lord's response. Who am I that I should go? I'll be with you. Do you remember the exchange between Gideon and the Lord? When the Lord commissioned Gideon as a judge who would save Israel? And he said to him, here's Gideon, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. What does the Lord Jesus promise us as we go out on this, for us, impossible mission? I will be with you always. I will be with you always. So you might be sitting there thinking, you know what, doing what Brad Buser did or Brooks Buser, the president of Radius, who went to the MBMB people or um, several of my missionaries who are here in, who serve in India and Indonesia, um, some missionaries up in the balcony, I think, who served in Siberia, there's several folks in this crowd I've met. You might think to go and give my life to do that, that is beyond me. Who am I? I will be with you. That's the answer. That's the, the smartest guy in the world with the most gifts, 
can't get it done unless Christ is with him. How is he with us? By the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. He said he would send the promise of the Father upon his people and we would be his witnesses, really first the apostles and now us. Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria are historical places. The apostles really went there, right? So your local city isn't Jerusalem. You understand that? It isn't. My local city is in fact Bakersfield. I do not live in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a historical place to which the apostles were really sent by Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to reach. And, and like the kind of homely side towns near me aren't Judea and San Francisco is not the ends of the earth, right? That's not, that's not how this rolls out. The point is we're sent out to peoples, tribes, and tongues who've never heard Christ. We preach the work of Christ and repentance for the forgiveness of his sin, of sins, for the forgiveness of our sins in his name to all nations. He promised the gift of another comforter upon his ascension. One who comes with strength. You know that, that comforter from the Latin, with strength, like that's not my forte. Playing the pianos, doing anything musical is not my forte, anything. It's not my strength. Saving people and converting their hearts, regenerating them is also not my strength. The comforter has come though, and he will not let the words that are truly preached fall to the ground. And the Holy Spirit has come. So where would Jesus have us look for assistance in this glorious calling of making disciples in all the earth? Listen to what John Owen said. He would have them look neither for assistance in their work nor success unto it, but from the promised Spirit alone. And lets them know also that by his aid, they should be enabled to carry their testimony of him to the uttermost parts of the earth. And herein lay, and herein doth lie, the foundation of the ministry of the church as also its continuance and efficacy. This promise that Christ will be with us by his spirit is the foundation of the ministry of the church and also its continuance and efficacy, its effectualness, its power. And thus, really, we worship him and we proclaim him knowing that it is only the Holy Spirit and not us who does the work. Folks, our triune Lord created us, provides for us, redeemed us, and carries us forward in the Christian life and mission until he brings all things to glorious consummation. And thus we proclaim together, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? 
Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that you in love sent your son, that your son purchased grace for us. We are thankful that you, Father and Son, sent the Spirit, that he might apply that purchased grace to us so that we are your children who worship you. We pray that we would not take for granted the glorious privilege of communion with our triune Lord, nor that we would ever take for granted the great commission that we proclaim Jesus where he is not known, so that men of every tribe and tongue and nation would be saved. We want, we long for the day that Christ will return and consummate all things. Until then, do not let us get distracted, Lord. Let us remember what the Lord of glory has said, what he has commanded, that he is to be known in all the earth. May we trust you to do that work through us, knowing that in and of ourselves, we have no ability. But we have the glorious gift of the Holy Spirit who will do the work as we go about rather ordinary business that you've given us. As we preach the word and pray and administer baptism and the Lord's Supper, all these things that seem so ordinary to us, but through which your spirit has promised to work as we proclaim the Christ. What a gift. May we never take it for granted. In Jesus' name, amen.